Sam Adams made a very interesting point when he said, it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. However, the same irate minority can also set brush fires of dissent, hate, distrust, misinformation. In a race to the bottom for likes and ratings where the line between journalism and entertainment is completely blurred, where anyone can find a platform and where we have to define and agreed upon and shared truth, where the leader of the free world calls the press an enemy of the people, in this reality, how do we determine what information to trust? Found out we had a lot more in common. Raising money from anyone in the middle. Buzzsaw of, of lobbyists. Think Trump is a master of distraction. To get their hands on nuclear weapons is... Let's stop talking about bathrooms. Our issues are easier for people to understand. Welcome to The American Centrist. I'm your host, Lou. Thanks for joining us today. This is a new podcast, and we're really looking forward to your input as we develop this conversation. So please share your ideas with us. You can do so at Centrist Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and of course, our website, theamericancentrist.com. So chances are you have some strong beliefs that you're deeply tied to. And while I don't think we can change your beliefs, I'd like to replace a few of them with ideas. And so why do we draw this distinction between the two? Beliefs are fixed. They're tied to emotion. Ideas, however, while they can hold the same position, they're rooted in a why and can indicate a willingness to examine the validity of the concept. With agenda-driven media outlets and the ability to find a blog, podcast, or social media group to support almost any political peccadillo, we can often find ourselves trapped in an echo chamber. So how do we get out of the cycle and find ways to move forward together? Joining me today again, Jeff Link and Dave Kochel. Both are political consultants with deep experience in campaign and operational politics and policy. One of them represents the conservative viewpoint one the liberal. If you listened last week, you know who's who. If not, you'll know in pretty short order which side they're on, but I'd like to avoid labels as long as possible. So just to give a little background, between the two of them, they have over 50 years of experience in political battlegrounds. One was the first staff member of Bill Clinton's campaign in Pennsylvania and deputy director of paid media and research for President Obama's campaign. The other, a senior Iowa advisor for Mitt Romney's Iowa caucus campaign and senior strategist to Jeb Bush's campaign. Gentlemen, Thanks for joining me. Uh, so what's your quick take on this before we get into the questions? Well, I'm enjoying the uh, opportunity to sit here with my longtime friend and nemesis, Jeff Link. Uh, you know, we both have uh, a lot of experience in, in politics. We know the messages. We know uh, what the other side is going to do. Uh, hopefully this podcast is a way to kind of uh, uh, pull back the curtain on some of that. I've worked on six presidential campaigns, dozens of of uh, uh, statewide races, and uh, you know, so I think between the two of us, we've seen a lot of the tricks of the trade, and uh, hopefully, this uh, this gives us a chance to kind of push back on on arguments that the other side might make, but also look for ways to to come together around ideas that that might actually make a difference for the country. I think that's right. I, this has been a really interesting experience, and and the thing that I appreciate about it is that as Digital communications and social becomes such a driving force in elections. It it truncates the amount of time you have. Um, you know, at, at one point Twitter was 140 characters. They've expanded now, but it's it's really limited what you could do, and it basically limited everything to insults and barbs. And if you can get past the insults and barbs, there are places where you can can find common ground. Um, you, you just don't get that often enough in in the back and forth of a campaign. 
Okay. So I think with the the twenty four seven news cycle and and the, the the massive impact of of social media sort of accelerating everybody's opinions, we get a lot of information that might not necessarily be as accurate as as it could be, and that that people though are are hanging on to, right? So I'm going to go through a couple of ideas that may or may not be accurate, and I just want to get your your quick take on them, and then we can go back and 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 dive into them a little bit deeper as to whether or not these are gross misrepresentations or rooted in some kind of reality. We'll start with this one. Republicans are more patriotic. 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, there's different kinds they, of patriotism. Look, there's, uh, there's uh, I, I think I mentioned last week, there's Lee Greenwood patriotism, and then there's uh, uh, born on the 4th of July patriotism. Everybody loves their country. Uh, it's just uh, manifested, I think, in different ways between the parties. Well, I, I, look, this is obviously the gross misrepresentation <laughs> you were referring to. There are different ways of patriotism. Uh, one is uh, sort of wrapping yourself in red, white, and blue on, on the 4th of July. The other is standing up for the Constitution. And I think how you view that um, is is kind of a divide uh, in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. It, I, I don't think Republicans are more patriotic than Democrats. I don't think Democrats are more patriotic than Republicans. Uh, I do think that uh, we, we shouldn't be using that as a, as a weapon. I think Republicans think they're more patriotic than Democrats. I think that's been a part of a, a, a sort of jingoistic turn that we've taken over the last uh, bunch of years. Uh, but I, I, I think Jeff is absolutely right. Everybody loves their country. It's just... Uh, we all have a different prescription for where it needs to go. So, are are the Republicans to some extent using the, you know, the flag on the back of their pickup and the fact that they are more apt to wear the the hats? Uh, are they using that as a weapon I, ag- against the Democrats to sort of tell the American public we care more about the Constitution? Uh, sure. I mean, it, it's it it is a kind of a feature of almost every campaign. I think Republicans tend to to kind of own the these colors don't run. Uh, argument, um, but you know, I think some of that is rooted in uh, you know where we are at any given moment in our culture. Where, uh, like particularly right now, Democrats are definitely more critical of where the country is and where it's headed, and and uh, really, you know, they have a right to be because uh, I think they feel like their views aren't being represented uh, in Congress or with this White House. So. Um, you know, it's it's how it manifests itself in terms of where people where people want to levy their criticisms. Um, Republicans will criticize the coastal elites and the cities and the intellectuals and the media, mainstream media uh, personalities. And Baltimore, <laughs> Baltimore, Detroit uh, doesn't have to stop at Baltimore. And and Democrats are um, you know they're they're frustrated. With uh, with a lot of the things that are going on uh, with this White House and and with the, the shiny objects that are constantly being thrown out, and so uh, you know we are in a period of grievance politics on both sides of the aisle. And I, I mean, you know, I know some of this show kind of feeds the both siderism uh, that is that is out there, but I think we got to be honest. Both sides love the country; um, they just have different ways of expressing it. And if we could ever, uh, you know, learn how to respect. Uh, the other side's views, and then we can talk to each other, and maybe then we can get things done on behalf of uh, a lot more people than are being served by uh, the you know the barking dog politics we have 
that, that kind of has sort of taken over the campaign landscape today. Next idea. Democrats want to give everybody free stuff. <laughs> well, that's a funny one for me if you listen to the first episode. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there is a tendency for for democratic policy ideas to to be sort of weighted uh, at giving things away. And um, I think that is a shortcoming of our our messaging. I think that if you if you really want to have a broad appeal, you should figure out ways to incentivize people to, to take an action, whether it's to get job training or to do something, invest in a rural community or, or uh, become a doctor in a rural community. It, it's got to be a partnership, right? Somebody has to contribute a little something and then they get a little help from the government. I, I think if you just give things away, uh, that, that doesn't quite work out the way you ever intended to. Is the the message coming from the Democratic Party as a whole close to in line with that, even though your your take on things is not? Well, he, I mean, here's the big challenge that, that the Democratic Party as a whole uh, has right now. We, we don't have a nominee for president. Uh, the Republicans do have a, a leader. Uh, they have a president of the United States who is the spokesperson for the Republican Party. We, we can dive into the fact that he's not a very good Republican, um, particularly when it comes to trade or a variety of other issues. Um, in some ways, he is. In some ways, he's like anathema to Republican orthodoxy. But on the Democratic side, we have 24 candidates who are running to be our nominee. And we have about eight or nine different lanes or ideas within those 24 candidates. And so we don't have a unified message. We don't have a unified messenger. And, and so we've also got a Speaker of the House now who has a voice. Uh, we have a minority leader in the Senate who has kind of a voice. But, um, you know, it, we won't have a, a unified party position uh, maybe ever, but we won't have one until at least we have a nominee. Well, the second night of the first round of debates, you had a unified party when every single candidate on stage raised their hand when they were asked if they wanted to provide illegal immigrants with health care. What the country heard that night was a very unified message, which is free health care for illegal immigrants. And so the, the problem that the Democrats have right now is that sort of instinct to oppose the you know what they see as racism and xenophobia coming out of the Republican Party sort of drives them to uh, to to with unanimity raise their hands on an issue that 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 wouldn't have twenty percent support in a general election and so I think what what Jeff is kind of getting to here is you, you got there's a there's a lot of landmines out there and and a lot of free stuff sounds good uh, free college uh, forgiving student loans. All those things kind of sound good when it's coming out of the mouth of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but what people that uh, are in the middle of the political spectrum here is, wait, you're going you're gonna to tax me to pay off someone's student loan, even though I didn't go to college or my kids aren't going to college, uh, but, but somehow I got to work harder and more hours to pay for them. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a red herring to, to talk about 
people raising their hand on, on that question because if, if you did a poll in America and you said, do you think we should be providing health insurance to people that are incarcerated in prison, what percent do you think would say yes? I think that number is going down. As we become more callous <laughs> as a society, I, I, no, I mean, this is this is a. This I is think just it started low. It you started think low, and it's probably getting lower. Yeah. Okay. Another one. An outwardly aggressive military makes us safer as a country. No, it doesn't. Uh, I think there are, um, you know, s- strength is uh, a very impart- important part of the American uh, security profile. We've got to be able to project strength around the world. We've got to use consistent and strong language and standing up for our values and for ourselves and for our friends. Uh, and so, you know, um, there is a line that you cross and it becomes belligerent and aggressive. Uh, and, and, and this administration uh, has demonstrated it, I think, in spades. You talked about North Korea and fire and fury. Uh, my button's bigger than your button. Uh, you know, that is uh, the kind of language that it would have been completely unacceptable in foreign policy discourse uh, even three or four years ago. That said, uh, it appeals to people uh, in, a, in, a, in a way because they see someone who's fighting uh, for them or fighting for our country. And the language that President Trump uses on foreign policy that's effective uh, is is sometimes language that our even our allies don't like. You know, you're not paying your fair share. You're not. You know, why are we got to pay the bill to defend NATO? Uh, you got to do more. Uh, and there's some. There are kernels of truth behind all that stuff. Although the way it is presented is really not truthful. Uh, you know, NATO people don't write checks to NATO. Uh, well, they do. But but what he's talking about in terms of people not paying their fair share is is that you know. Countries in NATO have agreed to have two percent of their budgets go towards military um, spending, and and some countries aren't aren't doing that, which uh, isn't money to NATO, but it's it's basically money for their own defense. Uh, so there's a lot of confusion about that stuff, but he gets to the root of a lot of uh, uh, what people feel. We want people to be. We want our president to be tougher towards China. We want our president to be uh, to stand up for our interests around the world. And we want our president to be tough uh, standing against, you know, nuclear proliferation in Iran and, and North Korea. This president just does it in a completely unorthodox way, and it sort of upsets the foreign policy establishment, which I think is actually the point. That's what he's trying to do. Well, look, he, he promised to be an isolationist. He campaigned on being an isolationist, and, and that's what he's doing. Now, of course, he does it in the most absurd way that he can find, um, which is not acceptable. If he were working at the State Department, he'd be fired. Like you, it's not a good way to behave. It's not a good way to proceed. But honestly, you got to give him credit for running as an isolationist and, and acting like it. Getting into a trade war with China, he promised that. Mm-hmm. Not good for our economy. Not good for the ag economy. Uh, but he promised that. Um, being uh, offensive to our best and longest allies in Europe, he promised that. Uh, it's one of the few areas where he's actually done what he said he was going to do. It's detrimental to our country. The language that he uses is off-putting and harmful, but this is kind of what he he's delivering on what he promised 
uh, and, in, in this area. And, and he, he gets and he gets a lot of credit from his base on all of these issues, even while it kind of leads to a lot of white knuckle moments in our foreign policy. And it leads to great concern among our allies who uh, I can't imagine being a fly on the wall, uh, you know, at the talks between, you know, the, the foreign ministers in Germany and England and, and you know, France and our other allies uh, when talking about the behavior of the president and, and our country. Uh, that said, you know, underneath all of the bluster and the rhetoric, you know, we have a pretty good functioning foreign policy infrastructure and establishment. Uh, it's just sometimes this president gets way off, uh, way off track in how he talks about things. And it, it's jarring because we aren't used to the kind of language that he uses. But his, his best supporters cheer it. So is, is that bluster that he's got going in foreign policy making us less safe now? Uh, Absolutely. I think you can, you can make the argument, but there are other features to it. Like, for example, uh, on trade, Jeff's right. Uh, Republicans, the, the trade policy that this president puts forward is anathema to longtime Republican dogma. Uh, you know, we're for free and fair trade, have been uh, for a, a several generations. And yet, uh, as he uh, threatens trade wars, uh, raises tariffs against our allies and our competitors, um, a lot of Republicans are saying, well, you know what, he, at least he's standing up for our country uh, when it comes to China, who's been taking advantage of us, ripping us off, uh, stealing our technology at every turn, and who uh, you know just engage in all kinds of, of anti-competitive practices. And at the same time, you know, there are, there are barriers to trade that the Europeans put up. They protect their agricultural in, industry to our farmers' detriment. Um, so he's he's tapped into a lot of stuff that people feel, uh, and but when you remove it from the the kind of rhetoric he uses, which can be very simplistic, but it work but that works for him, you know, we do need a a totally different trade regime in the world so that people can be on equal footing as we as we trade goods and services. The the world is global, uh, you know, we are all globalists whether we want to be or not. Uh, but I think what this president has done is he's found some very specific uh, tracks of language that he goes down and, and uses that people can identify with, even as he sort of upsets the whole uh, you know, long-held notion in, in the Republican Party that we need that we need free trade. It's really too bad that he's had to turn to uh, socialism to, um, to make farmers whole. Uh, based on his trade practices, because what he's done is he has uh, shut off the Chinese market for soybeans from from the United States. He's Im the Chinese have imposed retaliatory tariffs, uh, so it makes our corn more expensive, ethanol more like everything that we produce in the Midwest is more expensive. So farmers are losing billions of dollars. He's just now uh, paying out about $14 billion in a second round of payments. So we're now up to around $24, 25000000000 billion that he's had to pay to farmers um, to make up for crushing the markets that they have overseas for their, their products. And it's really a, a totally government-run program well, and that sounds so, a lot so, like socialism. Before but, we go too, 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 too much further... 
I want to go backwards just a touch because I think you guys have tracked into the the tariffs issue more than I was intending. So let's stay there. Okay. But let's because <laughs> it's fantastic. But let's go backwards just a little bit because I think that most people have a very cursory understanding of what the problem is and what these tariffs are doing. So let's just start with the question of, okay, so his position is that China's taking advantage of us. True. Okay. Is China taking advantage of us yes. and in what yes. ways? Yeah, of course they are. Absolutely. Okay. How How is what they're doing affecting American manufacturing and American jobs? Oh, well, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they dump steel on the market. Uh, they, they steal technology. Um, they uh, crowd us out of markets uh, around the world with cheap prices that, that you know, our, our more prosperous economy can't compete with. Farm, farm chemicals. Farm chemicals. There, there are a million ways that they engage in, in harmful behavior to us. And uh, to, to Jeff's point a minute ago, that, you know, if, if, if the current normal is, is permanent, it's going to totally screw the not only the agricultural industry but a lot of other industries. Um, the the bet here is that this this bluster and this tough rhetoric and the tariffs and and the behavior coming out of this president is going to eventually shock them into changing their behavior. And so uh, the, the real question here is how much patience do we have? to bring China kind of in line with international standards of behavior in terms of how we treat each other's economies and the kind of rules that we play by, and are they ultimately fair to, uh, to American workers and, and American jobs? Uh, so, you know, the, the, where we are now can't exist forever. We're not going to keep these high tariffs on products and, and continue to, to basically write checks to industries and, and farmers so that they can recover the damage that is being done by having high tariffs. If, if those stay in place forever, it's completely unsustainable. So he, he's trying to get to someplace else, and the question is how much patience do we have to get there? So it's like a big game of chicken? Yep. Yeah, well, he's, he's trying to bluff the Chinese government, and um, I just think that's a, that's a bad game to play for, for Trump because um, they have a lot more staying power than he does. Uh, President Xi is going to be around a long time after Donald Trump is gone, whether he wins a second term or not. And he can wait this out. He has much more control of his government and his economy. And because of Trump's bluster and bloviation, it has, I think, uh, not only caused issues with our own allies, as Dave pointed out, but for the Chinese or for others, um, it, it hardens their resolve on the opposite side of us, and it causes huge problems. And we, we are going to have a long-term problem. Even if we solved this trade dispute now, and there are talks going on now, uh, no one's hopeful that they're going to be resolved in these current talks. But even if we do, it's going to take years to get back markets so in China. The, the tariffs that are in place, what's the goal from, from the Trump administration? What are they trying to get China specifically to acquiesce? Well, I mean, a lot of things. Uh, 
they're trying to get them to stop stealing our technology, which so, so let's back out for just a second. Behind Jeff's words uh, and cr kind of criticism of this, it can be implied that that we should have done nothing. And that's, I think, where that is not the implication. That, that's 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 what ultimately if you had if you had uh, Hillary Clinton as president and probably Jeb Bush as president, uh, we wouldn't have gone to this place in our kind of trade posture around the world. And and we would have uh, had to continue to sort of negotiate, you know, nicely with the Chinese and, and get nowhere. And in the meantime, their ability to steal, uh, you know, intellectual property and technology from our country, get, you know, to continually strengthen their hand and be able to, to, to compete with us in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be able to, would, would remain unfettered. And, uh, and so, so that's the argument for what Trump's doing, even though it doesn't seem rational, and we don't know where the end game is here. The argument against it is that if we did nothing and kept on the same track, uh, we would just continue to lose the trade deficit, which isn't the, the the trade deficit doesn't mean we're losing money. It just means we're buying more than they're buying. So so that's that's kind of one of the things that's misunderstood about all this. And I disagree with Donald Trump on trade almost across the board. But the truth is, uh, you know, if if we didn't, we're going to continue to lose our own technology to our our fiercest international rival. Uh, that doesn't have our interests at heart or the interests of our workers at heart. And I think what he's trying to do is to protect those interests. But how can you disagree with Trump on trade but endorse his tactics? I'm not endorsing his tactics. I'm saying well, you that. Just, you just attacked I, every, you, so, you attacked my implication. I didn't even say anything. <laughs> this is what we do, Jeff. So, but so, no, but here's the thing. Diplomacy was making progress. And what you're saying is that diplomacy was a dead end that was going nowhere. So I think we were losing more ground than we were gaining. And I think that's the realization that a lot of Republicans came to through the rhetoric of Trump, whether you agree with the tactics or not. I think something had to change from the Obama uh, foreign policy and trade policy and probably the the W trade policy and foreign policy. Right. There wasn't a huge difference between not what huge W difference. was doing and what Obama was doing. And there in, is a huge difference now. Yes. and in, But in the meantime, China had made enormous gains against us in terms of taking our technology and in terms of strengthening their own position around the world with markets. So, you know, um, I don't know what the right answer is here. I know that it wasn't status quo. So. Just to go backwards here, you're suggesting, Jeff, that diplomacy was working. Is that I think or, or I, getting I, us somewhere and that the tariffs aren't the answer? I think that diplomacy is a far better option than trade war. Okay. Absolutely. So we agree on that. Uh, okay. When when we were doing diplomacy, we didn't have to pay farmers twenty four billion dollars for the for the economy being crippled. In what time frame? Is that $24 billion? Is that just since the, the tariffs? Yes, in the last two, two years. years. Okay. So, and, and that's just writing them a check to try and make up for the loss of revenue because of the loss of markets and the prices dropping. Are other segments of the economy being hit as hard as the agricultural and the farmers? Well, you know what's interesting? Um, I was always fascinated by the first round of tariffs because... Essentially, what I mean, let's go back to the basics here. They put it, we put a 25% tariff on all these products coming in from China. Okay. 
Trump likes to say that the Chinese are paying for the tariffs, but the Chinese are not paying. Consumers are paying for the tariffs, and he knows the difference, and here's why. Do you know, Dave, that on that first round of tariffs, they exempted Apple products? No, I didn't know that. Yes. So your iPhone didn't cost 25% more the day after the tariffs than it did the day before. They knew that it is the consumer who pays the tariff, and they wanted to exempt the most obvious consumer product that's coming from China into the, into the United States. And that's why when he, he claims to not know who's paying for the tariffs, it's so outrageous because they were smart enough to carve out Apple. Does the American public know that they're paying for the tariffs, even if the president does? That first round of tariffs were mostly targeted to products that are within other products. So the manufacturer ended up paying and then passed the price along. So that's why it's taking a longer time for people to actually feel this. Um, but once you get these big consumer products into the, into the tariff regimen and, and iPhones start costing $1,500 instead of $1,200, then I think you, you'll get people's attention. So if the tariffs are, are there and we're in the middle of a game of chicken, we've walked away from diplomacy. Now that products are costing more, I don't think we've Where's walked the away way from out? I don't think we've walked away from diplomacy. I think there is a lot going on right now to negotiate between the two countries. I don't know if there's going to be a deal. Uh, to, to to use Trump's language, we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, it's a but, great strategy, <laughs> right? But I do think there there is diplomacy going on, and I think that uh, at, Trump believes that he's uh, strengthened his hand by being tough. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, all right. So next, next uh, topic in the question of misrepresentation or reality. The present state of the economy is 100% due to Trump's policies. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, certain news outlets are touting that it's, that it's accurate. So, 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 so Obama liked to take credit for a growing economy. Trump likes to take credit for a growing economy. No politician wants to take credit for a, a shrinking economy. Uh, this is just basic. Uh, things have been going pretty well in this country since 2009. Uh, it, there's been slow and steady growth. It's one of the longest periods of growth in our history. And uh, it, it's if you look at how dysfunctional Washington is, uh, voters probably ought to start understanding that sometimes Washington doesn't control all of this. Not one person, one party. I think people understand that. But, well, but they're also fed a constant line out of both parties uh, when they're in charge. Uh, 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 good, good times because of me, bad times because of them. And it is part of our, uh, it is part of the shouting that goes on. Um, you know, the economy is strong because we have a, a highly productive work, workforce. The economy is strong because, uh, you know, we have a lot of consumer confidence. Um, we have companies that are innovating and doing smart things. Um, it, it's, not be, it's not because of rhetoric coming out of Washington, that's for sure. So, so Jeff, to the, the person who says to you, well, uh, of course I'm for Trump. He's made the economy great. What's your response to them? Well, uh, as Dave said, look... It, 
you, you can't take too much credit or too much blame for the economy at any one time. It is built on things don't move quickly in the economy. Uh, it, and we've seen this. Um, you know, you can cut taxes. It doesn't mean that there's going to be growth right away um, or sometimes ever at all. Uh, there are a lot of things you can try and do to the economy. Uh, I mean, maybe the Federal Reserve has more impact on the economy than any politician in Washington, because if they actually lower interest rates, make it cheaper to uh, refinance your home or something like that, that has a real impact on the economy. But what we even saw through the financial crisis is that when the Federal Reserve used all of its power, dropped interest rates to zero, it still had a very limited effect on the economy. And so I think any rhetoric that comes from from uh, this White House or a previous White, White House, you, you just got to take with a grain of salt. Okay. Uh, so let, let's go into another one. Giving an inch in the argument of gun control means that people will lose all rights to gun ownership. It's an all or nothing argument. No, can't be. Uh, I mean, Dave, Dave's only Dave's only written about a hundred mail pieces that say that. <laughs> so, uh, th so the, 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 this is a very easy argument for the right to make, which is that there, uh, it's 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 the it's the inverse of the argument that Democrats make about abortion which is it's a slippery slope. Once you do one thing to limit access to firearms, uh, it opens a floodgate and down we go and pretty soon, uh, you know, Hillary's gonna send the jackboots to take your guns away and we're all gonna be vulnerable to, to the government. Um, I mean, you know, and, it, and by the same token, uh, when it comes to abortion, you know, Democrats fight any hint at restrictions where most of the country believes that there are reasonable restrictions. So it's like we've got our we've got our issues. Uh, guns play in favor of Republicans, I think. Although there is you know there's a growing number of people in the country, uh, and in fact a, an outright majority of the country who think we ought to have background checks. But the fight you know in Congress and with the NRA's messaging is you know if, as soon as you start down that road it's going to lead to But that's not where the, that's that's not where they stop that's the problem and you you see in many states where the, they're not just resisting background checks which is eminently reasonable um, but they're expanding the use of concealed carry they're eliminating um, the need for law enforcement to be involved in a concealed carry license i mean that's just silly. Like, why wouldn't you want your local county sheriff to have some say in whether a person gets uh, a concealed carry license? The sheriff might actually know people who've been through uh, the jail and is not in a state of mind to have a concealed carry permit. Uh, I, I've talked to sheriffs, in fact, that, that said, you know, once this law passed, we've had to give permits to people who should not have them. I mean, that's reasonable. And so, you know, just to, to do the hyperbole doesn't really kind of serve the issue very well, I don't think, because no one wants to take all guns away. Uh, there are reasonable limitations for public safety. I mean, the epidemic of uh, mass shootings in this country is completely and totally out of control. Uh, and, and look, I was in Las Vegas um, 
for a conference the night of the shooting at that Jason Aldean concert. And it's just unfathomable to think about somebody sitting up in that hotel and just firing randomly into the crowd. That guy took over a year to get to the bump stock issue. Yeah. Uh, That's how broken the conversation is around gun control. And as a Republican, look, uh, I'm guilty of of what Jeff is accusing me of here. We use this issue as a way to message uh, in, in stark absolutes. And the fact is we could find a lot more agreement mm-hmm. uh, between Jeff and I on this issue than disagreement, and yet our campaigns require differentiation. And so some of, some of what we gotta do is we gotta get, we gotta, we gotta have periods of time now where you set aside the campaign and you govern. And we don't do a very good job of that as a culture anymore because we're, we're, we're all in the show. We're all interested in the fight. We're all interested in Rachel Maddow on one side yelling and Sean Hannity on the other side yelling, and nobody ever really talks to each other. There's got to be something we can do on this issue. And I actually think it's, it's probably one of those issues where there's some opportunity. It's not going to happen in the middle of this presidential campaign, I can tell you that. Is there a place where... Uh, the, the the staunch supporters of, of Second Amendment can start to have a conversation about some level of control or is it going to stay completely on the all or nothing world? Is like it is there anywhere where, where we can find some conversation or compromise? Yeah, there there has to be. Uh, but again, it, it, it's not going to take place in the middle of what I think might be the most heated and uh, you know, sort of heightened rhetoric in, in any presidential campaign we've ever seen. I don't think this is going to be the time to do it. I think we're going to have to get past 2020 before, but, we, well, before the, we find a way to do it. The, By inter- virtue of this being such a heated campaign, is there value in forcing this to be part of the issue to eliminate some of the people who become uh, you know, single agenda voters? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't think either side is going to give up their their one-issue voters too quickly. I mean, Republicans really rely on uh, Second Amendment supporters as one-issue voters in the same way that Democrats rely on uh, abortion rights voters as single-issue voters. I mean, we we are if if we're in a, a period of time when uh, you know it's all about the base, you know, this is just one of those things nobody's going to budge on. No, I think that's right. And and Trump just for his brand. Uh, can't really uh, look for middle ground on an issue that's important to his base. His brand is that he is the zealous advocate for the those basic uh, issues, whether it's abortion or whether it's uh, gun rights. He he is just fundamentally not capable of giving ground into anything that's reasonable uh, because it hurts his brand. And all that guy cares about is his brand. So if we fast forward past the 2020 elections where where politics is going gonna, is gonna to dictate what happens as opposed to maybe what's best for most people, right? And we get past that. Can the conversation start to be had about a middle ground where there's reasonable gun control and Hillary's not going to send the jackboots to somebody's house to steal all their guns. I think so. I just hope it doesn't take another 10 mass shootings for uh, us to send thoughts and prayers. Uh, But I I do think it, 
we have to have a change in the rhetoric. Part of why we're doing the show, I think, is to mm-hmm. is to start to carve out some of these areas where we can find agreement. Uh, you know, you could take a, a candidate like if, if there was a Republican version of Pete Buttigieg, uh, you know, and then Pete Buttigieg on the other side, they'd find a compromise mm-hmm. because you know you can you can kind of feel it in the language and the approach that they take to politics. They want to try to find ways to talk to people so that we're not pushing each other as far to the to the extremes as possible. And, and I think this is starting to happen. And Dave, you may know the numbers, um, but I think the NRA is losing membership. I think I think their budget has gone down pretty dramatically. I, I think if the kind of um, ultimate Second Amendment group loses power and loses budget and loses the ability to to contribute heavily in these elections. That's that's what's really going to change things. I think Jeff's right. It's a NRA is an organization that's in an, a lot of turmoil right now. But I still believe that the conversation around guns is going to be shaped by the candidates that lead the respective parties. And until you have people who are able to find ways to engage a message that can reach out to folks on the other side, you're not going to really make much progress, even even while, you know, uh, the, this, some of the business end of this argument with the NRA uh, might diminish a little bit because of the troubles they're having as a group. Yeah. And, and I think that your your statement about, you know, I hope that there aren't 10 more mass shootings before we can stop sending thoughts and prayers and 2020 is quite a ways away. Uh, maybe I'm a skeptic, but I think we're going to see more than 10 more mass shootings. Yeah. I mean, you know, before that 2020 election and more importantly, before the next president takes a seat in the office. So uh, we're not going to solve it now, but I think that 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 question, even though it probably won't be solved as part of the 2020 election, maybe we need to start asking people to dig into it before the 2020 election. Yeah. So uh, let's let's jump into one last topic for for a minute here um, that that uh, could be misrepresentation or reality. The opioid crisis today is either the fault of big pharma or the fault of a lack of personal responsibility. Those those seem to be the two narratives. It's both. Okay. <laughs> Uh, obviously, the, there's a lawsuit going on right now that's kind of getting to the bottom of, of um, you know, manufacturers and and the profit uh, motive and incentive behind, you know, the sort of promulgation of these medications. At the same time, I'm a person who, you know, having gone through chemo, had to, you know, had to have opioids, and 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 it scared the shit out of me to be perfectly honest, knowing, you know, what was going on in the country with, with, I mean, it's such an addictive drug. Um, you know, fortunately I have a strong support system around me and I was able to just use them for the period of time that I needed them and then, you know, step away. But, uh, that's not true for everybody. And then when you add to that, I think a lot of these rural communities where there's just, there's not enough to do, there's a lot of economic despair, there's access, uh, you know, uh, at least initially, um, you know, it it causes a huge problem. Um, you know, obviously everybody's responsible for their own choices, but they're they're certainly being helped along by an industry that is um, looking to make money. Well, and the the access is uh, that is so important in this whole thing, and I think that's where the pharmaceutical companies are are 
facing the greatest liability. They didn't train doctors to say, hey, these are addictive when you prescribe these. They trained doctors to say, hey, these are really good for managing pain and you should prescribe them all the time. When these, when these court cases do come out and they get the documents from the pharmaceutical companies about what did you tell doctors, what, what did you advise doctors to tell their patients, I think what we're going to learn is that they said, hey, this is a great way for managing pain. This is, the, this is a better way than all the alternatives. This is what you should use. Well, guess what? They are right about that, but it is also incredibly addictive. And, the, and you learn that independently. Uh, you didn't rely just on whatever the doctor told you. And that's why you were aware and cautious of that. But if if you don't have independent information besides what you're getting from your medical provider, and the, I'm not holding the medical provider uh, liable in this because if they were trained by the pharmaceutical company, this is what you should tell your patient. That's, that's a huge problem. And then, of course, uh, when the access to the opioids gets shut down and you got no other alternative through legal means and you now are addicted, what do you do? You, you, you turn, turn to it. fentanyl or heroin or yeah. – a cheap but dangerous alternative. And yeah. that's uh, that's where we are right now. And um, this is one where we got to – I hope there's bipartisanship behind this issue, and I do believe that there is, at least rhetorically there is, um, because this has got to get solved. This is killing – this is killing communities in in a lot of states where there are rural populations that just can't get away from this, and it's going it, to it, – the, the the number of deaths, I think, is in the range of fifty or sixty thousand people a year. I mean, you know, can you think of any other thing killing that kind of people that that is preventable through a lot of, you know, through responsibility in 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 the pharmaceutical industry, through better training of doctors, and through uh, community support and treatment. Uh, I mean, this is this this is a crisis that we should be all over so both parties. You, you both brought up the the training of doctors, right? And and considering this problem's been going on for a number of years, you know, I think, and maybe I'm making a leap here. The pharmaceutical companies are prone to train doctors that way because they make the most money. The doctor, with an oath to do no harm, shouldn't they, regardless of training from the drug companies? be steering people away from these drugs? Well, for the first several years, they, they didn't know how addictive these these opioids really were. And, and they had, there were no independent studies. They, they didn't have information available to, to vet this. I think as we've seen this epidemic uh, explode, now now they do. And I think now they're they're advising patients differently. So from from a drug company standpoint, you know, if if they're if they're making the the product available to the massive number of people, where can the government step in without overstepping its bounds to to start to do something about this? I don't know if regulation of the drug companies is the answer. I think education on the part of people and and the medical community that's prescribing the drugs is the answer. And and at this point, it's metastasized outside of that uh, of that universe. Any now we're so now we're into. Uh, you know the illegal market, mm-hmm. fentanyl, heroin, other other forms, and and you know that's that's very hard to contain except in a law enforcement and treatment 
um, manner. But, I, you know, I don't know that we're going to regulate our way out of this. I think education um, um, in the medical community is the is the first driver of, of so that. And, that's and, and they towards need to, personal responsibility. Well, personal, not, not necessarily. Personal responsibility on the part of both the doctors to be aware of what, what they're prescribing and, and the effect that it has, and then personal responsibility on the part of, of consumers of these drugs uh, with, with, with education coming from the people they trust, their doctor, their nurses, saying, you know, uh, we got we got to start backing this down. We got to get you off of this. We're going to prescribe less, and then pretty soon you're going to be free of this uh, addiction. Uh, you know, people have chronic pain. I had it when I was going through you know uh, intensive chemotherapy. Um, how do you deal with that? You have to. You have. You know, their, their job is to provide comfort for their patients, uh, but their job is not to provide it to the extent where they can't ever, you know, get away from it. So. Um, it's a it's a it's a tricky problem. It's one I think that can exist beyond partisan politics. Well, and look, there is there is a um, uh, amendment in the Bill of Rights that can that can deal with this, and that amendment is the Seventh Amendment. It's the right to trial by jury, and in the courts, they these drug companies need to be held accountable. They need to pay a giant fine uh, for their. Uh, Bad behavior and and their negligent behavior, uh, that's that's a role of the government and it's an important role. And you know, Dave and and his candidates always like to try and limit the power of the courts in those situations. But I mean, that's that's it may not all be in regulation at this point, but right now, that's the courts are our best best bet. I think there's a a, a much greater awareness right now, and particularly among my candidates in rural communities with people who support them uh, understanding the vulnerability. Uh, and people, they don't just need to pay giant, pay giant fines, people need to go to jail. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll have to see if these, if these fines are, are big enough to actually be a detriment to the massive uh, uh, income that they're getting off of these drugs. Mm -hmm. So, uh, all right, I think, I think that's where we're gonna wrap it up for, for this week. I think we had a pretty good conversation on some, some varied topics. Do you guys have any uh, uh, parting comments here? <laughs> got them all. Got them all out in the time we had. Oh, it's a family show. It's a family <laughs> show. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I want to thank Jeff and Dave for being here uh, with us today. And if you've been inspired or found us to be interesting, take a minute, subscribe, rate the show, share it, tell your friends, uh, tell your enemies. Maybe they'll become friends. So uh, join us next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to hit us up at CentristPod on the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And with your questions and thoughts uh, on the AmericanCentrist.com. 